0: it does show the sort of strain that the market is under this
1: winter
2: it's very rare to hear the chief economist of the bank of england being so frank about brexit i
1: think that what's more problematic for policy in the uk is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture Stephen,
3: i would like to have a small rant oh just a small one that's a relief
4: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden.
3: And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Have any of you ever been accused of being anti-maths?
4: <laughs> no, I studied economics at A-level, Lizzie Burden. So did I. Let me trump you with an A-level mathematics.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, this is part of the debate the Rishi Sunak has. I'm not going to compare it because it didn't study in the same system, so it doesn't really make sense. But um, the... Rishi Shinak has launched what he described as a a strategy to combat an anti-MATS mindset. Hmm. He says that there is a problem with there being a cultural sense that it's okay to be bad at maths.
2: That's fair enough, Stephen. You would never show off about not being able to read.
3: No, I I, I think th- there's a point to be made in it. I think the thing is is that th- there's a couple of questions that you'd also ask at the same time though. While it's very laudable to say that the UK needs to improve its uh, numeracy skills, and that's essentially what the plan is here, this court under the umbrella of one of the five priorities of um, growing the economy, but the question of how they're going to do it mm. is slightly more intriguing. And I think listening to Rishi Sunak making this speech, he did acknowledge it's not going to happen overnight. But some of the ideas he was saying of, you know, for example, teaching maths, you know, using free kicks as a way to measure time and distance will get more children engaged with the subject. I'm not entirely sure it's going to translate into a a numerate revolution.
4: No, okay, I get it. Here at Bloomberg, of course we love maths. Even though I
3: frequently read numbers backwards on the radio.
4: (laughs) Yes, look, we're data-driven. Maths is massively important. Obviously, it's it's crucial. I think it's fantastic that we do have a Prime Minister who is pro-numeracy, pro-literacy, of course, too, but that he's shining a real light on this idea. I think I... I must say, when I was a teenager, I don't think I loved maths. Now I do really, really enjoy it, and I think it's massively important. But to your point, the issue is that although the Prime Minister has embraced this as as a kind of policy, and he brought it up uh, initially in January when Mm -hmm. he talked about teaching maths to children, all children up to the age of 18, there's been severe pushback. Why? Because we know, according to the Times Education Supplement, that half of secondary schools are not even using expert maths teachers to teach secondary school pupils. There's a huge shortage this year. Ministers have already cut back the targets on maths teacher trainees And there isn't the money going into this
2: education. How do you produce numeracy without proper teachers? And so that matters because surely the reason that Rishi Sunak wants to boost maths in schools is to benefit the economy. But the Office for Budget Responsibility isn't going to change its growth forecasts unless there's a significant change because every single government has a different agenda for how it's going to run education. So this is a hobby horse for Rishi Sunak unless he pumps a significant sum Mm. into getting more specialist teachers. Into
3: it. And it's also the question of, like, look, he's he's also trying to paint the the Tory Party as being a long term bet. This isn't something that's going to produce short term results. So he's saying, look, we have a big plan we have something that goes beyond the rapidly looming horizon for the next general election, mm. um, and it's a it's a kind of an effort by him to project the Tories as having big ideas at a time that they don't seem to be. Lousy with them.
4: Oh yeah, well, there, I mean, there are you know fundamental issues I think in terms of the education system, particularly coming out of the pandemic. So I do think that he has perhaps struck on something that may appeal to voters. But I again would just quote some of the um educational experts mm. that we heard from at the start of this year. You know, the general secretary at the Association of School and College Leaders, the general secretary of the N. EU, so the National Education Union, all highly critical of the Prime Minister sort of reheating an idea, or at least they were, you know, at the start of this year, saying that, you know, it's not not deliverable in terms of teacher numbers.
3: Yeah, look, while Rishi Sunak very much wanted to focus on this policy, unsurprisingly, most of the questions that he was getting from journalists who was making that speech were about strikes, particularly. Right. To, one, first of all, obviously people saying if you're worried about teacher strikes, you know, how can you be talking about a bigger plan for education without addressing that first? And the other one, of course, related to what happened with the, the vote on the nurses' strike, the Royal College of Nursing rejecting the government's pay offer.
2: Yeah, very much a case of don't count your chickens before they've hatched. The government really was flaunting its deal with the nurses as a done deal, a victory. And then, But they hadn't yet balloted the nurses, and as we saw on Friday, the Royal College of Nursing voted against the deal, even if Unison mm. accepted it. Uh, and they're now threatening the RCN to continue striking until Christmas, and if that is coordinated with the junior doctors, it's... Uh, chaos for health. Mm. It means the government might not meet its targets on waiting lists. We know that in the latest GDP data, the strikes were the biggest weight on services, hence why growth only flatlined in the latest figures. And that has political consequences. It's not good luck a good luck when you've got local elections next month and a general on the horizon.
3: Yeah, look, Rishi Sunak saying that they that it was a fair settlement that had been offered uh, to those healthcare workers, saying the positive news for the government is that the biggest union unison voted to accept it. And he's said they are, quote, committed to find a way through this as well.
4: So that's one problem for the government. But of course, the bigger issue is around jobs and economic growth. And I think it's interesting that there was a survey on the Bluebeck Terminal, uh, especially for our listeners um, and readers, because half of them who responded said that actually the jobs of the future are not in finance, perhaps have some math still needed but the jobs of the future are in tech and this is where uh, our interview with the city minister andrew griffith comes in lizzie burden has been speaking to him
5: i want to ask you what's the point of backing uk startups if once they get to a certain size they choose to list elsewhere
6: Well, that's absolutely not what we want, clearly. I mean, what I've been talking about today at the Innovate Finance Global Summit, a collection of some of the most exciting fintechs anywhere on the planet, most of whom, it should be said, are based here, looking to raise capital here, uh, benefiting from the UK's progressive regulatory regime that embraces innovation. Uh, And yes, of course, benefiting from a lot of the reforms that the Chancellor and I are putting in place to unlock pockets of capital, so whether that's insurance, capital through solvency two Some of the work that we're looking at now to see what the opportunities are uh, in the UK's pension capital and the reforms we're making to the UK market uh, that are going to help make it um, a better place for people to be able to list, uh, stay on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and benefit from that. So we're seeing a drought in many countries in the world at the moment about people going to market, uh, but the position of the UK, whether it's in fintech startups, as we've been seeing this morning, or whether as a capital market, one of the t- world's two biggest capital markets, uh, I think is strong.
5: And Ruffer Investment Director, Duncan McInnes, told Bloomberg last week that deposit outflows from the UK's challenger banks and two larger institutions and money market funds at the moment is quite catastrophic and an existential crisis that they'll flee to death unless the Bank of England backstops all deposits. Do you think the Bank of England needs to increase the threshold for guaranteeing deposits past 85,000 pounds given that it's 250,000 pounds in the
6: US? Look, it's it's right for for my officials and I working with the bank to constantly look at whether you've got the right threshold and the right scope on these. What was important is that when we saw things like SVB UK, we were able to step in, act decisively, deliver a really good outcome. And I've been hearing that from a lot of the founders and entrepreneurs here today, how pleased they were with that outcome, and that the UK was able to be agile in securing that for them, partly because we've got control of our own book here.
5: But so that something like that doesn't happen again, should the UK be moving to a pre-funded deposit guarantee like the US and the EU?
6: Look, we, we, we take a, a keep these things under uh, good review. It's our job to make sure we've got the right balance between ability for firms to grow, uh, for consumers to have confidence and trust in the financial system, but also that we don't put unimpeded regulations on the sector, because the best way the sector competes is by being successful, having sustainable businesses that deliver a good return for the economy over time. So.
5: And speaking of fostering British business, the government's halted engagement with the CBI. Now that it's got a new director general, the president has apologised. At what point is the Treasury going to re-engage with Britain's biggest business lobby group?
6: I can assure you, I engage with uh, Britain's business uh, every single day. You'll find me, whether it's in the Bloomberg headquarters uh, hosting an event, uh, whether it's having a constant dialogue with uh, businesses, financial institutions, every single day. That's my commitment. I'm sure that's true of all of my colleagues in government, I a specific, real commitment.
5: Specifically to, ministers like
6: well, I, I don't want to codify that through any particular. Uh, framework this afternoon. I'm heading back now from uh, London's Guildhall, where I've met thousands of uh, young entrepreneurs. Heading back to the Treasury this afternoon, I'll be meeting some of the UK's biggest asset management firms. We'll be having a good discussion about how we can help them continue to grow their business and make the UK the best place to start, run and grow a business anywhere in the world.
5: Minister, how many times did you personally meet the CDI last
6: year? Uh, I many times. Um, I, I mean, I meet organizations, whether it's UK Finance, Innovate Finance, who've hosted today. We're here in the City of London Corporation, which itself is a great nexus for business uh, and for the financial community. Uh, I wish everybody in that sector who engages with the government, well, the important thing that they understand is that we're on their side. We're here for every business, large and small. uh, And it's not how you engage, it's the outcome and the changes that you can make as a result of that engagement that I think matters the most. Well, that was the city minister, Andrew Griffith speaking to our Lizzie Burton.
4: Now, Britain's biggest business lobby, the Confederation of British Industry, is in chaos. Police are investigating reports of sexual harassment among staff and an alleged rape. Separately, its Director-General, Tony Danker, was fired over unrelated allegations of workplace misconduct. Some prominent businesses are now privately considering whether to cancel their membership of the CBI. Bloomberg's Sabar Meddings has been reporting on this story and she's with us now. Good to have you on the programme. What have businesses told you then about their view on what's been happening at the CBI? I
0: think it very much depends whether they're speaking publicly or privately. Publicly they'll say that they're really sort of backing the investigation, they want to wait until the full, you know, full findings have been published, they support the, um, the, the dismissal of Tony Danker and um, clearly they're all horrified about what's happened. Privately they are sort of starting to question the membership of the CBI, they're starting, you know, this perhaps provides an opportunity to think, does this organisation represent me? Does it provide value for money? Um, are there perhaps more targeted lobby groups that might be more effective for my business? So it's really sort of causing a bit of a, um, a wider discussion about the sort of very purpose of the CBI itself.
3: Can you just remind us of how important the CBI is in terms of connecting business to government?
0: Yeah, so the CBI uh, claims to represent 190,000 businesses. Many of those will be through a sort of a affiliated um, trade organisation. And what you'll find is that the CBI will have a regular audience with um, number 10, the Treasury. They'll be regularly in discussion. If you think about um, the annual conference um, in November, it was this year in Birmingham. Rishi Sunak was there one day. Keir Starmer was there the next day. They really see it as a kind of a set piece speech of the year, particularly this year. If you think about we had the disastrous mini budget and then it was only a few weeks later that um, they really sort of trying to um, prove that they were sort of speaking for business. So if you think about the CBI and um, the but as the voice of business to um government they they would say they're sort of a real front row seat and have the always have the ear of the prime minister and chancellor of the day
4: yeah okay so that's the sort of sales pitch from the confederation of british industry but then what about the criticisms of the organisation? I mean, just outside of these particular recent events, yeah. there have been other criticisms, of course.
0: Definitely. And if you think about um, so the way fees are paid, so they make twenty-two million um, pounds a year in fees, and their total income is twenty-five million. So that's a huge um, proportion. The majority of that is from big business. It's paid according to turnover. So if you think about in total income, the majority of that is coming from big business. Um, a lot of their um, if you think about it, as we headed into the budget, they were really sort of banging the drum for, um, you know, a a replacement for the super deduction, for energy, uh, support with energy bills. Um, And, you know, I mean, to give them credit, they were were definitely sort of right there involved in discussions during COVID over the furlough scheme um, and sort of providing that vital support for businesses. So... A lot of it is on the big set piece, childcare, for another example, but it is um, generally a criticism would say that they um, support uh, the the better speaking for big business over small. I spoke to um, Vince Cable last week and he was recalling when he was um, business secretary, he said, you know, they did work really well together on issues such as high pay or women on boards. But a real criticism was that small businesses were screaming out for the banks to start lending again. And he said the CBI was sort of a little bit muted on that point largely because he thinks a lot of the the big banks were their members.
3: What have the CBI done to try and, I suppose, stem the criticism around these recent issues or just to, I suppose, point them in a a forward-looking direction?
0: They acted really quickly. They brought in um, Rain Newton-Smith as the new um, Director-General. She only just left a few weeks ago to join Barclays. She was previously Chief Economist. So they've acted quickly to bring in a new Director-General. Um, Brian McBride was out on Friday in the Financial Times. He issued an apology. And he said, you know, they'll really have to um, perhaps redefine itself. I'll read you his quote from the FT. He said, it has to be sharper, it has to be more focused. And he said, they already do a, a huge number of things today. The question is, are these the things that really matter to members going forward? Um, so I think there perhaps will be a bit of a, a bit of soul-searching after this. There'll be a root and branch review on governance as well, so we should expect some big changes coming forward.
4: Okay, that'll be really, yeah, an interesting one um, to think about and watch. Sabal Meddings, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's a reporter there, just giving us the latest on what's been happening with the Confederation of British Industry. I mean, it is a hugely important voice. Um, Britain's biggest business lobby yes okay Mm. the criticism might be that they speak for big business but they do have this kind of direct line to government and it's a very very important organization in turmoil.
3: And it's a question of if who replaces the CBI if you if you if you were a business who's reconsidering your membership where else do you go will you find somebody that represents your trade or your particular size Mm. of business uh, more carefully is it a question that business won't be able to speak with such a singular voice after this as well. So it's kind of interesting questions around how business and government could interact mm. uh if if the role of the CBI were to change.
4: Well, although I'm sure that Ray Newton Smith, the new Director General, would mm. absolutely reject the idea that the CBI is going anywhere. But anyway, it is a story that we will continue uh, to cover for you. Uh, let's pivot, though. Uh, to think about what's happening this week in the UK. Red hot inflation may at last be about to cool. The figures that we're expecting this week could show inflation dipping below 10%. That would be for the first time since August. Now one school of economic thinking which correctly predicted the rapid rise in prices in the UK uh, were a handful of monetarist economists. Tim Congdon is one of those. He is the UK's leading thinker on the topic. He's also, if you recall, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister. Now, he joined Tom Mackenzie and I on Bloomberg Radio just this morning. He was scathing about the current crop of Bank of England policymakers. He warned about a really bad UK recession to come, but he also discounted any talk of unfashionable monetarists making something of a comeback.
1: There's a big fall in inflation coming coming up um, in the next oh, nine months or so. Um... Last year we had two monster increases uh, in the consumer price index in April and October, and they won't be repeated this year. In fact, they could be replaced some some of these some coming months by actual falls of the because energy prices have gone down a lot. So <clears throat> I would think that coming into early 2024, we're talking about inflation numbers under five percent, and the debate is really whether. We get down, say by January next year, to 2% or to say 4%. Um, my view is that there will be a recession, sadly, uh, and that uh, the recession will be partly because inflation will be rather obstinate and stick around, you know, 4 or 5% for a bit but then by the end of next year we should be down to 2% or so.
7: So 2% by by the end of next year. Sure. It's interesting when you talk to the likes the, the team at BlackRock for example and they talk about their views on how the monetary policy response in terms of inflation has changed there is a stickiness now to this inflation that we're not going to get back down to the central bank's target in the case of the US 2% anytime Soon, part of that is down to structural shifts, part of that is down to investment in renewables, part of mm. that is changes in, in the labor force. Mm. How, how do you think about that kind of analysis then and layer on your deep dive on, in terms of money supply?
1: I always look at what's happening, quantity of money, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you mustn't use just one month kind of look at three months or six months, but if you do that, what's happened in the UK. Uh, the eurozone and the usa is that the last three six months actually quantity has actually gone down totally unlike spring of 2020 spring and summer 2020 it's actually gone down uh and that tells me that you know you can talk about all of these special influences demographics and that's not the point you have a collapse of money growth from spring of summer 2020, over 20%, which is what has caused the inflation. That's the dominant cause of the inflation. Um, And that's now gone down to actual contractions in the quantity of money. I'm afraid we are heading for a recession, um, but inflation will fall too.
4: But I suppose that's the question, isn't it? And that's why I talked about this idea of kind of um, fashionability of how much central bankers are listening to that. Because the whole idea of inflation or the view of inflation now is that it's, around the imbalances between supply and demand that it was you know, due mm. to the war due to uh, Brexit due to food yep. shortages you don't see that at all and you think that your view is back in the ascendancy now?
1: No it's not in the ascendancy at all we're a small minority of commentators who may I say have got it right time and time again um, and it's really a challenge intellectually and to some extent I suppose it's rather exciting but it, it, it's uh, sad there is no doubt <laughs> that in the medium and long run, inflation is caused by excessive growth of the quantity of money. This is really just, there's a masses of data in all periods of time, <laughs> just the evidence is overwhelming. And it's puzzling in a way that the central bankers continue to resist this. Um, I find, I've been commenting on the Bank of England the best part of 50 years now. I have to tell you, the current lot are some of the worst I've ever, ever commented on. that there was a better phase in the 80s and 90s, the current lot are dreadful, <laughs>
7: Can You at uh, uh, the, uh, the risk of you know, with, with, without getting into any 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 territory of kind of libel anything like that, just talk to us about why yeah. you think the current, like, explain see, to us why you think
1: leaders when I was active myself, uh, as an economist in the city of London, there were lively debates about all this, and I knew people at the bank, I knew people at the treasury, um, and they didn't always agree and we had, I was sometimes wrong, but, but on the whole they would listen to the monetarists, okay? Mm. And, and by the way, there was a huge revolution in British macroeconomic policy making towards money targets, putting fiscal policy to one side and all that kind of thing. We did have a better period. Just be clear, we had a period of 15 years of low inflation with good growth, um, and, you know, it's really since the Great Recession 2007-2008 that um, it's, it's been very much the impact of university teaching uh, on recruitment into both the Treasury and the Bank of England. Uh, And the result is that you now have a kind of vintage of policy makers, not really generation but kind of vintage, of people who just don't know anything about money and banking. I'm sorry, it's as bad as that.
7: Can I just... Yes, uh, go ahead. Someone like Mohammed El Erdogan would push back very forcefully, Mm -hmm. and and he uses the Bank of England as an example of one of the central banks that's been more forthright, being clearer in terms of its communication. Others would also say they handled uh, the blowout in terms of the insurance liabilities uh, very handily as well. So... uh, you know, there, there, is, there is a view amongst many that, in fact, the BOE, in these difficult circumstances, is steering this ship quite adroitly.
1: I, I don't agree. Um, and and can, I, can I just illustrate this? You know, we had, a I think, a speech last week from um, uh, this lady of Argentina, Tenreiro, and, and she said that inflation was caused, above all, by the Ukraine war. It wasn't. You know, energy prices have fallen back dramatically uh, since February, March last year. The increase in the Consumer price Index on average, in the seven months to uh, February 2022, before the Ukraine war, the increase in the annual reaction was 0.6 percent a month, 0. 0.6 analyzing at seven percent. This was before anything to do with Putin and Ukraine. I'm sorry, and they got it wrong, hopefully so, and Andy Haldane had left the Bank of England in dismay at what was going on. I think that's the basic reason we don't know exactly why he left, but there was a big debate in the Bank of England, and essentially the, the non-monetary people won.
4: Well, I suppose, yes, they did, and so what is the consequence of that now, and what is the path ahead then for Andrew Bailey and his team? Because you're, you are now... and and. And I think the reason there is so much interest um, in your viewpoint is, of course, you did predict the rise in inflation. And now you're Mm. predicting a major recession to come. Mm. How Mm. deep? How long? What is the path ahead that you think Andrew Bailey is is going to take? And what will the consequences be?
1: Well, I, I I, I was there was a generation of new Eddie George and people like that. I, I don't really know the current batch of policymakers very well. So um, I knew Andy Haldane a bit. I mean, I think that the, I would just say they don't look at money. They really don't, despite hmm. the, the, the power of what's happened in the last three years. Can I just very kindly just mention this, um, even in late March, early April, 2020, I could see what they were doing. I said it's going to lead to double digit money growth and double digit inflation. Bang on. (laughs) Sorry, I mean, but this wasn't difficult at all given my framework. Mm. They don't look at money at all. Um, I think there will be a a bad recession. Uh, I would start probably all over the US uh, and the Eurozone as well. Not by the way in Asia, but Asia's had stable money growth in this period. Uh, And then uh, inflation, which will be sticky for a bit, the core inflation will be sticky for a bit. Um will then come down sharply in 2024 let's hope that we then return to a stable world in my view low and stable growth of money is the key to macro stability
4: That was Tim Congdon, one of the UK's leading monetarist economists there speaking to Tom Mackenzie and I
1: Strong opinions,
3: I think it's fair yes. to say, uh, yes. on many subjects. Well, we are, of course, uh, speak, we we're speaking to Tim Congdon ahead of the latest inflation figures that are due out on Wednesday this week. So the uh, Bloomberg Economics expects that we will see that headline inflation number fall below 10%, down to 9.8%. Remember, the February figure came in as a surprise, mm. was meant to be uh, was meant to be about 10.1% from memory, came in at 10.4%, uh, which led to, was a bit of a gasp all around that morning, as I recall. Um, but what Dan Hansen, our senior UK economist, was telling, us is that because of the, the base effects apparently essentially because energy prices have fallen by so much there's an there's an element which will sort of carry us neatly in a direction where inflation should be from now on starting to fall mm. fairly significantly when we look at the headline number uh, but there are elements within that which will be very important for the Bank of England to watch uh, as we count down to their next decision uh, next month. The other piece of economic data that we're getting that we will be uh, watching closely to is the snapshot of the jobs market that we'll get tomorrow.
4: Yeah look it's still staying though, that we've got inflation in in double-digit territory after 11 interest rate rises from uh, the central bank here. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
3: This episode was produced by James Wilcock. Our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. Special thanks to Lizzie Burden. I'm Stephen
4: Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepker. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bluebird.
7: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.